Also, Watson will be joining us this episode because I can't get rid of him. Yeah, Henry and Watson, you're on the <laughs> show. Get ready. You guys are on the show today. Um, be- Behave, both of you. Oh, you started doing your podcast voice, which means you're putting that in the show. I know when you're doing your podcast oh. voice. You, can't you, know how I, you know how I roll? I know how you roll. I heard it switch up. <laughs> We've been doing this a year now. We forgot to celebrate our one year anniversary. Really? Yeah. When was it a year? I don't know, like a, like a week or two ago, a couple weeks ago. Oh, what we should have <laughs> baked a cake. <laughs> Can we have like a late party? Yeah, let's just have it in July. Okay. If anyone is, if anyone in Chicago wants to come to a Bonnets at Dawn related birthday party, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> see, do you see what I did there? I started talking as if we were recording the podcast. You did. Look at you. Oh. And now let's fade into the music. Doodly, doodly, doodly. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the only podcast where one of your hosts is a cat and one of your hosts is a dog. True story. <laughs> I am your cat, Henry Hannah and Chapman, Watson. Team Austin. <laughs> and I am your dog, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. Yeah. I think Austin behave. would be a cat. Yeah. And the, yeah. Brontes and the Brontes were dog like people. A pack of dogs. Yeah. Yeah. We've stumbled onto something. If you disagree, let us know. <laughs> and for other hot takes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Guys, welcome back to the Austin and Bronte podcast. Uh, for the last month, we've just been doing Louisa May Alcott. But now we're bringing it back to, to its roots. She's great. We want to, we're going to bring her up again because Hannah just read Old Fashioned Girl and she's like, Lauren, you need to read it. Old Fashioned Girl and we need to talk about it. Yeah, basically. I also thought I found a <laughs> film of it, but apparently it's a different movie and a lot of other people have been tricked this way. So that was a real high and low point of my week. <laughs> Sorry about that. So yeah, now we are back and we're back with Emily. It's another Emily 200 episode. Yay. Emily. I'm excited. I feel like this is a big one as well. We're doing like the book. We're doing Wuthering Heights. Well, and sort of. Um, sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't do a read along for this book because um, it's just too much. And we didn't think we could handle it this year. We knew you could handle it, listeners, but we just are crushed under the weight of our our two read piles so so what we've done is an interview with judith pascoe now judith is a professor of english lit she's a guggenheim fellow we've had two guggenheim fellows on this show look at us we should get going. (laughs) we should and if there are any more guggenheim fellows out there that want to come on and that happen to work in the austin bronte space let us know um But anyway, (laughs) Judith has also written this amazing book, which is called um, On the Bullet Train with Emily Bronte, Wuthering Heights in Japan. And this is all about Emily's popularity in Japan. And I think it's really it's really interesting. Um, And we're going to get to that a little bit later. But first, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about Wuthering Heights because you've just now finally been exposed to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Finally. 
Um, yes. But yeah, the radio play. So I've now listened to a radio adaptation of it. And... Which just aired on BBC a few weeks ago. I think um, you still have a couple of days to listen to it. It might have expired by now, to be honest, guys. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. But Sorry. I mean, you can get a rip of it. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to look for BBC um, Radio 4 adaptations like as podcasts because yeah. I was like, oh, I would love to keep this forever and ever. And I was unsuccessful in obtaining one. So, Oh, that's um, weird because you know, they do a lot of their shows as podcasts. You know, I think maybe it was just the search. Oh, like okay. I, I spent like two minutes on it, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've let us down. But yeah, so I listened to it. Um, weird. What a weird, weird. What a weird book. <laughs> weird. Um, yeah, like, what's this Heathcliff thing about? I know that we did our whole episode about it, but somehow I still went into it expecting this romantic figure that I think popular culture has led me to believe is in the text. And mm-hmm. I cannot see it on any level. Sure. I think... Oh, man, I don't know. I think that Heathcliff as a romantic figure is harmful and damaging to women. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, too, with this adaptation. Um, they did a great thing by actually focusing on the whole book, and which is crazy because it's like 15 minute chunks at a time. Yeah. But a lot of people just kind of focus on the Heathcliff's Kathy story. But this does the whole book. Well, so I can also story, see how you'd be like, wait a minute. That's not the story because like. Exactly. Uh, it's a it's a power thing like it's it's having totally. power and like Heath, Heathcliff's quest for power continues well after the death of Kath, uh, of Kathy it isn't it's not love it's ownership it's possession right oh exactly and like it's not just ha- it, it's not just Kathy it's um the heights as well it's Wuthering Heights it's the whole package it's the name above the door it's I have your son um I have yeah. to have my son like it's just you know I will have the children and then I will have the estate Heathcliff yeah. doesn't love her. It's so horrible. It's um, yeah, I love hard hard to say if he he wants complete ownership and power, but does he love her? I don't know. I feel I like mean, I think he, he loves her in the only way that he understands. I don't know. But like, did you? Not a love story. Did, I love <laughs> no, Nelly it's Dean. Not a love story. By the way, Nelly Dean for life. I want to be in Nelly Dean's squad. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you do. Um, Nellie Dean. So, okay, let me back it up and just say a couple things. I really like this adaptation, um, even though it is like 15 minute chunks at a time. And also we're losing a lot of the like just atmospheric language of Emily Bronte, sadly. But it's what you can do over radio. And it's like it, it really works. Yeah. Um, the voice casting is great. Oh, it was so um, well voice acted. So well acted. Uh, Chloe Pire, who was Emily Bronte mm-hmm. in To Walk Invisible, is Kathy. And she's perfect. He's um, chilling. Like, the act is like, yeah. so angry. He's great. Nellie, um, you know, it's funny. In the book, I usually have, like, a weird – I'm really off-put by Nellie because I don't really know how to feel about her. Okay. Because she is a little gossipy. You know, like she's kind of t- she's telling the story to someone else, and it's kind of like I can't wait to read on all it. the salacious details, you know. But in this version, she's very much maternal. like she's so maternal, maternal, totally. You believe everything Nellie's telling you, yeah, hundred okay. percent, yeah. So that's one detail that's really lost. But she's more of like it- a Susan Carter from the Arches, right? 
to, sure. to my BBC Four fans. Sponsor <laughs> me. No, okay. Um, so yeah, so that I was kind of like, oh, this is different, but it's it's interesting. Like it's a, it's a good adaptation, I think overall. Like it's a good primer for Wuthering Heights. Yeah, I'm like as someone who, I mean, oh, I don't know. I would say that Wuthering Heights is not the book I've been the most excited to read. Mm-hmm. Which is stupid. And I, I mean, partly I think it's me being obstinate. Like the more people love it and tell me I should read it, the more I'm like, well, maybe I'm, I won't do it yet. Maybe I'll just hold off a little bit longer. Sure. But this adaptation, I'm like so ready to just sit down and open it and like dig into it. Like I thought this was great. And this is like a stripped back version of something that everyone tells me is like one of the most beautifully written books out there. So like if I love yeah. this version, like... I think reading the book is going to be unreal. Yeah, I think it's a really good starting point. Um, there are some things, too, that it does really well that, like, kind of changed my... I'm, like, e- eager to read it again because it kind of changed my viewpoint because... Oh, like what? There's this... Well, there's, like, this one thing that I struggle with constantly, and it's after Kathy has um, agreed to marry Linton. And I don't know why I get, like, the... I, get so confused with the names in Wuthering Heights. I don't know what my deal is. Anyway, it's because towards the end when all the kids... Everyone's <laughs> just got like, yeah, yeah. The same names. Anyway, it's when she agrees to marry Linton and um, she's telling Nellie Dean about it and Heathcliff is listening, but she doesn't know. And she's clearly like upset and conflicted over it, but also like, I'm definitely going to do it. Yeah. And Nellie's like, why don't you just be with Heathcliff and she's like it would be, it would degrade me to be with Heathcliff and of course he takes this as like I am not worthy I am a monster there's no way she could be with me like you know obviously he, that word like he takes it badly but the way Chloe Pire like gives the line reading in this is very much like it implies like my brother has degraded him so much and within posi- his position yeah oh so I that it wouldn't that's the only... it wouldn't work I assume that would be the only reading of that line so I guess maybe because I haven't read it myself and that's how the line is done that's just like yeah, yeah that's that's what she means but the speech is hard like it's it's a hard thing to like read around because you're just sort of like what's going on here um, but yeah, in the line reading, it did help me go like, oh, no, she's talking about like, just His they've position. been put in impossible yeah. positions. Yeah. Um, and also the, because it is like acted and like the abuse like comes across. Yeah. So really like, well. So much so. So you're just like, yeah, Kathy just wants to get the hell out of there. Really? Just like, so it's, it's such an unhappy story. It's such an unhappy story. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's the point, though. Yeah. That is the point. Um, I, you know, you said something in the Facebook group, and then there's one line in um, this adaptation that totally is just like backs up what you were saying, but you were basically like, hey, wait, <laughs> Heathcliff's a monster. Like, who is, who is interpreting this character as a romantic hero? Yeah. And there is a line. Um, that Nellie says to Heathcliff regarding Isabella. And she says, you know, like, you need to treat her better. Like, she gave up everything to be in this wilderness with you. And he says, she gave it up under the illusion, believing I was a hero of romance. But she begins to know me now. Ooh, chilling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ah. that's like the heart of Heathcliff, right? right. 
she gave up on the illusion believing I was a hero of romance but she begins to know me now yeah just hear him say it as well yeah I mean that's the whole point um great line great line so we had a great Facebook discussion about this shall we read a few comments from our listeners yeah when to talk about Heathcliff as a romantic hero yeah, so I just threw out like a one line thing after listening to it, just like, guys, come on, you're wrong. And then, yeah, just mad, mad discussion underneath. Uh, Candy Pace was like, Wuthering Heights is like the longest version of Snapped from the male point of view, lol. I don't know what Snapped is. I don't think I Oh, you don't joke. know? Oh, it's like, it's a show about um, women that kill their husbands. Oh, oh. <laughs> what, are yeah. you, what are you watching? <laughs> we love it. Um... <laughs> I was at a conference with a friend once and we just like watched it all night long. It sounds really good. It sounds better than Jampora. Yeah. So Rachel says um, that the problem is obviously Laurence Olivier, who cast Olivier as the villain. Um, yeah, I think that's I, I think that's the, the big thing, right? It's like the ad- most of the adaptations have gotten it wrong or the marketing um, has just been like, oh, hey, Emily Bronte's a lady. Let's uh, let's market. This is a romance. Let's put up my first cover of uh, Wuthering Heights was actually pink and it had like them embracing on the moors. That's insane. So, I mean, it's hard. That's how people market this book. Adaptations, though, because I haven't seen like I've seen half of one. So I'm just like, yeah, I should watch the Olivier one. The Olivier one is as crazy as the Pride and Prejudice Olivier. I do love the you know? Olivier Pride and Prejudice though. Like, oh, Which that's is why I'm so fun but off base. That's why I'm so disappointed that other film isn't. It's just like Olivier style Alcott. That's what I want. Oh, <laughs> never mind. Um, if only Olivier had done Old Fashioned Girl uh, or, um, sorry, Rose and Bloom and it. Uncle Alec. Yeah. yeah, can you? Oh my gosh, yes. That's who he would have been. But I if do only. feel like there would have been the like creepy uncalic thing would then be like irrefutable. Absolutely. <laughs> You'd be like, do you I know mean... Olivier's like <laughs> making eyes at the girl, like who's, you know, gonna be what, like super young, just oh, yeah. uncle. Well, like, so I mean, if you guys haven't heard our episode where we cover Olivier's Pride and Prejudice, like please go back and listen to it. It's one of our favorites. But um he just, he um, is a great actor, but, you know, obviously he's highly coveted by the studio and he gets to make whatever, like, script changes he wants <laughs> and how he wants to be perceived on stage or on screen, which takes precedence over, like, the actual material. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and Wuthering Heights is the same thing. And I think the thing about Heathcliff is I can see... I know I've said this a million times. I see how this character is really attractive for actors to play because it's just like acting with a capital A, right? Like, yeah, like you get to yeah. be, yeah, you get to like scream the roof down. You get to have all the dramatic scenes. So I'd pay, yeah, I'd pay to see that. Yeah, front row seats. Well, please. let's let's dig up his uh, his corpse and see what we can do. See any, what dark magic we can do. Any listening? <laughs> <laughs> Any witches? We got any witches in the house? Going back to Wuthering Heights, though. 
um, Mary made a really cool point when uh, she said, I think it's very mistaken to view the book as a romance, although it's very clearly influenced by romantic ideology and ideals of the Byronic outsider. Catherine is just as asocial a person as is Heathcliff. The two of them establish a kind of instant connection. And for the first quarter of the book, they experience uh, a kind of reverse Eden living like wild animals on the moors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think I really, really liked the imagery of Kathy growing up in this walled garden, like as if a wall could keep the moors out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nice. Like trying to keep out the outside and she's just like drawn to it. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear your thoughts when you actually read the book. Okay, so now putting this train back on track. Oh, we're going to go ahead and listen to our interview with Judith Pascoe. Um, very excited about this book. It is called On the Bullet Train with Emily Bronte, Wuthering Heights in Japan. It is available um, via the University of Michigan Press. I think you guys can get it, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that good stuff. So now I'm eager to know what was your first exposure to the Brontes? Well, I was interested to hear you say that you had actually kind of encountered it quite young and had not been charmed by it initially, because I think I had a similar experience that I read it maybe in grade school or junior high or sort of tried to read it and did not find it very alluring. And I, I think in particular, the first page is not a very, um, it, it's a little off-putting. And I recently had a graduate student say like, oh, I just love the beginning of Wuthering Heights. And I, my jaw kind of dropped because I've always just found the, the first, you know, the first page or so to be really sort of alienating. And um, I'm not charmed by Lockwood. So I have to get past Lockwood to be able to, to um, really get into it. And so I think I had an initial, probably not very um, pleasing encounter. I'm not sure if I finished it or not. And then when I was in graduate school, I had a classmate who I was very um, admiring of, a Canadian named Vivian Rundle, and she was working on a dissertation, on, and one of the chapters was about Wuthering Heights. And so she had this very smart way of reading Lockwood, how Lockwood was kind of parallel to the reader, and you know he's trying to make his way into Wuthering Heights in the same way that the reader is trying to make her way into this novel. So that made me um, more interested. Um, and and the other thing, the other thing that happened is that I much later, you know, years and years after uh, after graduate school, I had this kind of nostalgic longing to have taken, to have had this experience that was denied to me in graduate school, which was the class that entered before mine did. They took what was called a one book exam. So they spent a whole year focusing on one book. Oh, nice. And, yeah, I know. And so I, and of course you can be nostalgic for an exam that you never had to take. Like if I sure. if I had to take the one book exam, I would not think of it in this kind of, you know, uh, sentimental way that if I had only done that, I would then have complete mastery of a particular book. So mm -hmm. when I started thinking about Wuthering Heights, I, I did have thoughts of, oh, this will be my moment that I will like those graduate students of your the class before mine and all the classes before mine really be able to just focus on one thing and, and immerse myself in one novel. And so I really, at that point, I, Wuthering Heights for some reason was the novel that I wanted to do. I think that makes sense. I feel like that is the, I mean, I actually, so I, I did sort of a great books program in school uh -huh. and we did something very similar, but it was semester. So we just have one book for the semester and just break it down. What was and your book? 
Faust. Oh, nice. Okay, well, that's a great one. <laughs> that's a great one. And I also like, I say this to Hannah all the time. I'm always like, this story is Faust. Every story is Faust. Yeah, well, maybe every story is Faust. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just get like kind of hung up on it. But I think next to Faust, Wuthering Heights would be like the book yeah. to do because, yeah. Um, yeah, it just, there's so many layers. There's so many things like the structure, like what you're talking about with the beginning. The beginning is so hard to get into. But yes, like the structure of it is so fascinating as well. Right, right. And I had, I actually wasn't an English major as an undergraduate. I was a biology major. So oh, when, wow. I, when I took English classes, it was just like sheer pleasure. And I had uh, an undergraduate class that we read Proust for an entire semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just all Proust all the time with this um, Proust expert who was very elderly at that point. And it was just, you know, we it was like when you entered that classroom, it was just like entering a salon and having this wonderful intellectual experience. And, you know, I still have these fantasies. I have my my um, paperback you know, series of Proust volumes that comes with me where whenever I move and still have the mm-hmm. fantasy that I'm going to go back and, and, and reread it at some point. So Wuthering Heights was the first one you were exposed to. Did you get a little like Jane Eyre in there? Um, or I think I did. I don't have a very distinct memory of when that happened. I mean, I do remember reading Villette in grad school and that making a big impression on me, but I don't remember the Jane Eyre moment. Oh, that's interesting. I mean... I know this is not a podcast about Valette. Right. But God knows we've just done four hours on it. Oh, that's great. Um, any any thoughts on Valette? Or what are your, have you gone back to revisit Valette? Um, I have, but not super recently. I, I really have to confess that for the recent past, I have been so monomaniacally focused on Wuthering Heights. And, and that was yeah. my intention. It was like, I am just going to focus on this one thing. Then, But then, of course, instead, I instead of just focusing on Wuthering Heights, I decide that I'm much more interested in how Wuthering Heights has been transformed in Japan. Yeah, yeah. So that, and that requires trying to learn Japanese, which oh is <laughs> pretty much impossible when you are a middle-aged person, but, but totally worth doing. So that became the other preoccupation is learning enough Japanese so that I could understand why Wuthering Heights is popular in Japan. Yes, yes. which we are going to get into because this is like, this is absolutely fascinating to me. <laughs> So now coming back to your understanding of like Wuthering Heights, because uh-huh. it is a hard book. I feel like our listeners are very divided on it. People yes. are, it, they're, they, they love it or it's Marmite, right? Like they either love yeah. it or they hate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, it's very, very hard to get into. So we did talk about how the intro is like, you know, it's hard. It's not a very welcoming intro. No, I don't think so at all. Um, what else, you know, with the text, like, did you struggle with? Well, it's so, I mean, this is what I've ultimately come to really like, but it's so horrible. And, you know, the initial reviewers said all kinds of nasty things about it because they just were shocked and horrified by it. But now some of the things that are the most shocking, you know, like the scenes when Heathcliff strings up Isabella's um, dog, you know, Mm -hmm. hangs Isabella's dog, or the scene when um, he he catches... um, Hindley, or he catches Harriton, I guess it is. I'm sorry, I'm going to mix up the H names all the way through. But, um, and then regrets it. So he catches this baby that's kind of fallen over a balcony and then immediately is in a rage that he did that. I mean, that's that's so horrific. And it's so interesting to me that you could have this 19th century woman writer that is imagining those kinds of things. And it really does set her apart from a lot of the other writers at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's fascinating to me. But I can also understand why when people first read it and why people still just go like, whoa, this is this is horrible. 
Yeah. Yeah. What's going down in this book? Yeah. Why are yeah. children being thrown off the stairs? Yeah. 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 Now, um, what what are the things that you like appreciate about the book? Like now, maybe more so. Um, well, it's it's those things. I think just it just seems so original, and mm-hmm. um, and I also have to say that you know, in terms of the team Bronte, team um, Charlotte, or team Austin conflict, um, I really am uh, fascinated by Emily Bronte and just mm-hmm. sort of how self contained she was. Um, a really interesting moment for me is when. Um, the the sisters try to publish poetry, mainly um, fueled by Charlotte. So Charlotte decides we're all going to we're going to put our poetry together and publish this volume. And and Juliet Barker kind of poignantly refers to that book as um, maybe like the worst selling book of all time. You know, mm-hmm. almost nobody at all bought it. And Charlotte kind of goes into um, you know, make, make some attempts at promotion and. Emily Bronte is so seems to be so disinterested in any of that. You know, she wasn't interested in having her poetry become part of it to start with. And then after, and I think does not is not like Charlotte trying to contact famous men and say, "Here, can I give you a copy of this book?" And I just find that her just utter self-containment that she could be so brilliant and writing and be writing this brilliant poetry in this novel, and yet not really care what anybody thought about it or about, or about anything really. So that is, for me, a large part of Emily's charm. And for the purposes of my project, the fact that there is so little left of her. You know, for Charlotte, we have letters. For Emily, we have, you know, the the novel, the poems, the a few little like diary pieces, a rumor that there might have been a second novel in the works, but but no trace of it. And, you know, no, virtually nothing else, like no archive. And so that for someone who, you know, I feel like I... Um, I moved recently, and I feel like I am carrying around with me, you know, letters that I received when I was in junior high, and I'm, I've got this email box that's full of whatever, like nine thousand messages that I don't mm-hmm. have time to do anything with. And so, just that kind of pristine aspect of her remains was very attractive to me. Yeah, she's a mystery. I mean, that's why, like, she's fascinating to me as well because we just, all, yeah, all we have is this like violent, crazy, amazing, beautiful novel and poetry. Right. right. And just sort of like myths and rumors and it's kind of it's kind of it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe all that mysteriousness fuels the myths and the rumors because there's so little to work with that people project onto her in the same way that you know they do for, say, Emily Dickinson. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um what kind of like got the seed in your mind that you were going to focus on Withering Heights and like in Japan? Like how did that begin? I went to Japan with, um, with no awareness that Wuthering Heights was a thing in Japan. So okay. um, I start, I applied for a Fulbright mainly because my older daughter who was in high school at that time and who was a very interested in Japan really wanted to get to Japan. Mm-hmm. And as she will always say when I tell this story, she actually wasn't interested in getting to Japan with her family along with her. <laughs> she was really interested in going to Japan by herself. However, given no other option, she was happy to go as part of the family. So I uh, applied for a Fulbright, a Fulbright lecturing um, 
position. And so I was being, I was going over there as a teacher. So I was going to be mm-hmm. teaching American literature. I was not going over there as a researcher. I didn't even attempt to try to present myself as a researcher because at that point um, I had taken, I took one year of undergraduate Japanese thinking if I get this grant, it would be good that I had you know, attempted to start learning Japanese. Mm-hmm. But I went over there to teach American literature and, and got positioned at um, Suda College, a small women's college. And, um, uh, um, Nihong Joshidai, Japan Women's University, so two women's um, colleges. Mm-hmm. And I was there to teach. I taught the Scarlet Letter all year at one of my classes. Oh, wow. Okay. I was yeah. just about to ask I, what you I, taught. Yeah. Oh, Scarlet Letter was one thing. We, I, we did it across a whole semester, a chapter at a time. And then the other thing was um, I did a drama class that I was doing, Death of a Salesman and um, a Tennessee Williams play, um, The Glass Menagerie. So, um, so that's what I was doing. And so, but I had brought Wuthering Heights with me thinking that I would embark on this new research project that would be very focused on a single book and that I would not, because I would be in Japan and I wouldn't have access to big archives and I would be sort of alienated. I wouldn't start, you know, going down trails like I usually do. So, Mm -hmm. so I carried the book with me and was reading it in Japan and just, I don't know what my first in, you know, the first time I realized that this was kind of a thing that many Japanese people were familiar with, but when I would tell people what I was doing, everybody would mention the Japanese name of Wuthering Heights, which is Arashi Gaoka, which if you translate it back into English means something like Stormy Hill. Okay. Um, it's apparently a beautiful, beautiful title in Japanese. Like everyone I talked to would say, this is just the perfect title. Mm-hmm. Um, And so people knew it was almost like the title seemed like a kind of floating signifier that everyone knew Arashi Gaoka. And many people had read it, but even those people that hadn't read it knew of it as a thing. And so, and then I got to where I could kind of like recognize the title written in kanji. And I could, if I was in a bookstore and looking around, I could sort of find it. And I came across a manga version that was called Arashi Gaoka, but it didn't seem to have anything to do with the plot line of Wuthering Heights. It was about, okay. um, it was a yaoi manga, which is a kind of homoerotic manga. It's written for female readers, but this one had, it had two male characters and they were having these kind of erotic encounters. And I was like, hmm, this doesn't seem like something that really oh, right. happened in Wuthering Heights. So that, I started kind of like just collecting manga versions and looking and keeping my eye out. And then I would have people tell me about other, you know, all kinds of other um, versions of Wuthering Heights. And that, and so over the time I was in Japan for the first year when I was teaching American literature, I just started kind of collecting uh, Japanese versions of the novel. So um, were most people like introduced to Wuthering Heights in school, that like the traditional way? Well, that's that's actually a really good question, and I should preface everything I'm saying with with I want to just state very forthrightly that I I still do not in any way think of myself as like the authority on this or the last word. So everything mm-hmm. I'm telling you is going to be uh, put forth in a somewhat tentative way. But one of the things that I was really interested in is many of the um, women, sort of middle-aged or older women that I would talk to, including um, one really famous manga artist, Miyuchi Suzue, um, and one really famous uh, novelist, Mizumara Minae, who wrote a beautiful rewriting of Wuthering Heights set in post-war Japan. They both mentioned these editions of Wuthering Heights that were part of a series that was often in classrooms in like the 50s and 60s. 60s. And okay. it was a whole huge collection of um, world literature aimed at school children, but especially at girls. So okay. it would be called something like the Girls' Library of World Literature. And um, 
the two of them really remembered this particular volume. One of them was um, one of the girls' literature series was by um, a translator named Maury, and she did a kind of rewriting, retelling of it. And so I was able to get my hands on, in like a used bookstore, that particular volume, which was part of this bigger series. And and that was just really interesting because when I was growing up, the level of ambitiousness for the library in my classroom, we had, you know, maybe editions of Nancy Drew Mm -hmm. and the Hardy Boys. That was the kind of thing that was like lining my classroom when I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And these women had been in these classrooms that had Japanese translations, whole series of all kinds of world literature that included Shakespeare editions and, and, you know, pretty ambitious works for, yeah, uh, yeah, all available in translation. So, so that, to, to answer your first question, I don't know if, it was, um, I have, I don't know if it was, you know, if you would actually be in class introduced to bits of Wuthering Heights, that's possible. I don't know if it was part of the Japanese curriculum, but these books were definitely there. Okay, gotcha. And they made just a lasting impression, obviously. Yeah, and they made a very lasting impression. That's, so now, um, and I just totally wish I would have written down her name, but the the woman who did the uh, post- World War II, was it adaptation of yes. Wuthering Heights? Is that available in English? Oh my goodness, yes it is. It's, 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 it's Mizumura Minai's, the original uh, title of that work is um, Honkaku Shosetsu. And in, in English, in the English translation of Juliet Winters Carpenter, um, it's called A True Novel. And it is just, a, I, I think anyone out there who is a Bronte fan mm-hmm. would, would really like this novel. It, it is just a wonderful reimagining of Wuthering Heights. I am desperate to read it. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it is It is brilliant. I just love it. <laughs> okay, that is, okay, definitely on my list and recommending it for everyone else as well. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, this is interesting. Now, were you able to, because were you able to like read or talk through any translations of Wuthering Heights when you were there and like kind of compare and contrast or see how things translated? Well, all through this process, and you know, since then, when I came back to return to the States, I went and sort of full bore into Japanese study and did second year, third year, fourth year Japanese, and then mm-hmm. still didn't have very good Japanese, so started cultivating conversation partners by way of the Mixer, M-I-X-X-E-R, which is a website where you can find conversation partners from around the world. Mm-hmm. But in my second, I think, not during the first visit, but by the second time I went back to Japan, I went with a specific, I'm going to talk to people who have done versions like manga versions of Wuthering Heights. So I carried mm-hmm. out a kind of, um, uh, I, I, I made appointments to talk to lots of different people, inclu- including Mizumara Minai um, and the manga artist Michi Suzue, who's who wrote um, what is probably arguably one of the most famous and best-selling manga in Japan. It's called Garasu no Kamen, or The Glass Mask. Mm-hmm. And she has embedded in The Glass Mask a performance of, of um, Wuthering Heights. So I went over, and at that point, my, my Japanese was still not um, good enough for me to be carrying out interviews by myself. I would prepare questions, but I also had a um, very competent interpreter who went with me on, for most of these interviews. One of the interviews I, I couldn't, um, she wasn't available uh, and so instead, her name was Kurosawa Yako, and, and so instead I brought my older daughter, who as a result of having spent a year in a Japanese high school, has much better Japanese than I do. Sure, yeah. So she sort of helped with at least one of the, and, she, and my children helped all the way through because 
because of their sort of immersion experience, they their reading ability is a lot better than mine. So anyway, we went and I would just ask, you know, come with my paper full of questions and ask people about like, when did you first read Wuthering Heights? And, you know, when were you first exposed to it? And, and, and to just tell me about their experiences with it. Now, um, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but it's something that we're going to dive into a little bit more this year. And like, I'm gonna ask you this personally as well, but I'm curious to hear what everyone you know you interviewed uh, thought as well. Do they see it as like a romantic text or maybe more cautionary? I think. Um, w- I, I I would I can't really generalize. I can talk mm-hmm. about particular versions that sure. I my sense of what the appeal is in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me is that um, one of the first people I interviewed was. Uh, um, an actor named Koshira Miyako, who is a very, very famous actor for this um, company called the Takarazuka Review. And the Takarazuka Review, which has existed for over 100 years, I believe, is a theater company that all women, all female actors, put on productions, uh, often of Western works. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she was the first Heathcliff. This, this woman, she played Heathcliff in 1969 for this Takarazuka all-female production. And it was, she was very happy to talk about this experience. She had been, you know, really, really famous actress for this. Um, and, you know, she was, the Takarazuka Review actors play either male parts or female parts. And they're, they sort of get trained to play either male leads or female leads. And so she had been one of the male actors, one of the people that played male actors. And her, that moment of her playing Heathcliff was a really important moment for her that, you know, she said in the interview, I was interviewing her in a hotel in, in um, Yokohama, you know, she at one point said in Japanese, I was Heathcliff, like I became Heathcliff. And I think as part of that production, the Takarazuka productions tend to be pretty romantic stories. So in that instance, I would say yes. Um, but Michi Suzue, who, who embedded a version of Wuthering Heights in her manga, she talked about choosing that as one of the first um, one of the first plays that her main character, who is a student, a, kind of like a student at a, at a drama at a drama company, like a drama school, um, she, that's sort of one of her first big parts. She plays Kathy, and I definitely got the feeling that the Kathy in the glass mask part of her appeal was just that she was so passionate and so outspoken and it was just a kind of empowering female role that and, mm-hmm. and very appealing just because she's so expressive. Oh, interesting. So I think for different people, um, it, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to speak for, for, for everyone in any, by mm-hmm. any means, but you could see different ways in which this work was appealing to people. And there's lots of like, just, the ad- it sounds like there's just like lots of adaptations and just mm-hmm. every form of media too. So we have the manga, we have the stage adaptations. Have they right. done movies as well? Or um, there actually is a really I, I should mention first of all that the 1939 film, the the you know film with Laurence Olivier and mm-hmm. and Merle Oberon, that is very important in the history of the popularization of Wuthering Heights in Japan because, you know, it came out in 1939, but because of the war and war censorship, it didn't get shown in Japan until around 1950. And so for a lot of, again, women of, of, you know, sort of middle-aged or older women, that was one of the first Hollywood movies they saw. And I okay. think that film made a huge impression. And in fact, there's a manga version, a, a pretty recent manga version that is based really on that film. So it's like a manga version of the film and it came packaged with uh, um, like a 
DVD that had the film on it. So you could buy the manga, watch the film with Japanese subtitles. and Oh, interesting. Read a manga version of it, right? And that's really impacted like an entire generation that you think is maybe just like pass that down again to... Well, I think you know, I think the other versions, the newer versions of the film, as are really um, influential too. And there's mm-hmm. a, there's a Japanese filmmaker whose name is um, Yoshida Yoshishige, I believe. I hope I'm not mangling his his name and memory, but he made a, a 1988 film um, that is called Arashigaoka that is a reimagining of Wuthering Heights in the 15th or 16th century, and it's super brutal. I mean, it probably ramps up the violence level on, on Bronte's novel even higher. So uh, I think it is, a t- you know, it's, it's tapping into something that's absolutely there in the novel and all those horrific violent scenes mm-hmm. and, and, and running with it. And if you're like to venture to guess, like, what do you think it is about this particular story that maybe resonates with people so much? Well, one of the things that was really interesting to me um, a kind of sort of just thing that made me really think as that people would talk about it is, you know, as I was talking to some of these uh, people who have either acted in Wuthering Heights productions or written manga versions, I would always just be thinking about, you know, were they reading the same thing that I was? So in other words, whenever they were exposed to this, like, was their thing, was their Wuthering Heights the same as my Wuthering Heights? Or was the fact that they were reading their Wuthering Heights in such a different cultural context mm-hmm. that we were having totally different reading experiences. And and when I interviewed a, um, a Takarazuka director whose name was Ota Tetsunori, um, he mentioned these um, plays that were very well known in Japan. You know, other people in Japan, Japanese people would all, would all know these. And they were by, um, the author was Chikamatsu. And he wrote these stories. One was called The Love Suicides at Sonazaki. Another one's called The Love Suicides at Amijima. And there's like a Bunraku production and a Kabuki production. So there's different kinds of dramatic productions. And in these, these stories, an orphan falls in love with a courtesan and then they have to kill each other to fulfill their love in heaven somehow. So they end tragically mm-hmm. with these characters dying. So he would see when he read or thought about Wuthering Heights, he absolutely saw it as part of a Japanese literary tradition. So he's reading it against this thing that other Japanese readers or, you know, theater goers would be familiar with. So it was really interesting to me to think that, oh, like maybe Bronte's more Japanese than, than British. Right. She fits in some way, somehow she fits into that tradition in a way that she doesn't fit in into the 19th century British novel tradition. And, um, did you ask people too, in general, about like Emily as well, or what their thoughts were of the author? I really didn't, because again, mm-hmm. going back to the the way that I was trying not to read things biographically, um, I didn't. You know, I'm I'm totally enamored of a lot of the work that people have done in this area, especially like Lucosta Miller's book on um, the Bronte myth. I think it's called, mm-hmm. and I'm, I hope I'm not butchering her thing. And and um, Deborah Lutz's, I think, book recently that's the Bronte Cabinet, where she yeah. does these readings of the objects. I love those books. But while I was reading, um, while I was working on this project, I was very carefully trying not to do something that was, in, you know, that was in that same space and mm-hmm. in that kind of space, right? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, no, I'm just like, I'm so jealous. Like, I wish I could have sat in on some of these interviews. I mean, I yeah. wouldn't have understood anything. I guess you did have a translator. but Well, I, I, I did, and, and I didn't either. I mean, that's the thing, too, is often people would be telling me things, and then, I mean, the whole process was a process of just awareness of my own inability to fully master anything. So if I mm-hmm. set out to master Wuthering Heights, that didn't happen, because that couldn't happen, because it's a brilliant novel that's going to continue revealing itself in a million different ways forever. But then... I, I also was trying to master Japanese, and that really, really couldn't happen. But again, I keep doing that to this day. I, you know, I still spend time all the time working every day, working on trying to get better at Japanese. And right. both of those things were – so I, sometimes belatedly, I would realize that something somebody said was a reference that I hadn't caught in okay, the moment gotcha. that they said it. And so I would come back to something and go like, oh, like, oh, now I understand why they were talking about that. Now, like – at the end of all of this, do you feel, and after like writing the book too, do you feel like your your feelings towards Wuthering Heights have like changed? Have you, did you go through a period where you're like, I can't even like look at it or think about it anymore? No, I, di- I, I really didn't. I, I, I didn't at all. And I still, I feel like this is kind of just the beginning that I could, I don't intend to spend the rest of my career um, writing about Wuthering Heights necessarily, mm-hmm. but I do think that I will always maybe have uh, and be working on this at some level that there's just so much more to learn about. And, um, at one point I was having, I was at a gathering with, um, um, a translator of Wuthering Heights who translated the novel within the last 10 years. Her name's Kanosu Yukiko. And um, she and her editor and another Japanese novelist have very kindly agreed to meet with me. And we were having this conversation and, and specifically about the translation of, um, uh, the line, you know, I am Heathcliff, like mm-hmm. um, uh, Catherine's most famous line, which for me all the way through the project, I was kind of holding on to that line. That was kind of, I would, I would always use that as something I could kind of like orient myself and ask people about that line. And for a number of reasons, it's really hard to translate that line. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost impossible. It's, it's just very challenging to Japanese translators. But as we were sitting, um, having dinner together, um, the editor at one point said to me, something along the lines of, you know, we're lucky in Japan um, because we have so many versions of Wuthering Heights. We have Wuthering Heights for children and for different kinds of readers. And you have only the original. She says, you have only the original. And I just, I still think about that, you know, because I, yeah. I have been trained to think of the original. That's the, that's the most important thing. Like, that is it. It's right, it. exactly. It's the original. But she just made me think about it differently in terms of, you know, this is sort of flowering of creativity that had occurred and how there could be different, it even different, because there's been um, something, oh, there's just been an enormous number of translations. I won't, if I, maybe 20, um, mm-hmm. since it was first translated and fully translated in 1932. And she, that was just really interesting to me and that people be, could be reading multiple translations and comparing them and debating, you know, who, right. who said that's the best. So, so that kind of just made me shift the way I, uh, I think about um, literary works. And we are back. So we were sent this article a couple of weeks ago by a couple of listeners, actually, and it's so relevant to today's episode It's entitled Why China Loves Jane Eyre, whether as a feminist manifesto, a history of colonialism, or just as a simple children's bedtime story, which I don't know about that last bit. But anyway, um, great article. Hannah and I actually had like an awesome discussion about this one. Yeah, (laughs) sadly, 
we're not going to have on air at this time. Cutting room floor, guys. Sorry. Sorry. But um, you know what? Let's talk about it on the internets. We're going to post it. And you are going to find it. So now how would they find it, Hannah? You can find it where you always find the nonsense we post on the social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Bonnets at Dawn. Uh, you can email us at, g- at bonnets at gmail at bonnet, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. That's mm-hmm, right, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I mean, right. don't email us yeah. asking for the link. I don't, you know, I just have to say it in this order, <laughs> guys. It's the rules. Uh, or you can find us on Facebook where we will also post it at Bonnets. Just, no, just, it's just Bonnets at Dawn. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that was a train wreck. <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> I think they know how to find us by now, right, guys? If you're Bonnets a new listener, listen to any of the other episodes and skip right to the end for a much better go. description of where to find us. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this Emily 200 episode. Um, We have more coming up on Emily, a lot more. I also want you guys to um, get back on the Emily's Best Lines train. So if you have any um, Wuthering Heights quotes or, um, you know, Emily poetry quotes that you particularly enjoy, send them to us. We want to do a thing. We want to do like a little collage. Also, I'm getting um, an Emily Bronte tattoo at the end of this year. What are you? Yeah, I have a quote. Oh, no. Yeah, and then we're going to do like a, we'll do a vote and then you can pick which one it is. (laughs) My uh, my vote is fuck off, Branwell. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have one in mind, but you know, like maybe someone will send something in and I'm like, oh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a bad idea. Yeah. All right. So, uh, guys, send in some lines so I uh, know what to tattoo on my body. Mm-hmm.